Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Jonathan Anomaly. He's Associate Director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics Program at the University of Pennsylvania and a visiting scholar at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at Oxford University. His new book is Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you give us a sense of what our gene editing capabilities look like today? Yeah, I'd say they're pretty limited. So as you probably heard last week, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who were the co-discoverers of CRISPR-Cas9, the system by which bacteria can edit the genes of viruses, they won the Nobel Prize last week. And that technology has already been used to edit human embryos and specifically to edit the embryos of two Chinese children who were born in 2018. So it is technically possible. It's very much on the horizon that it will be used more widely. On the other hand, the only thing we can really do with it realistically right now is to edit, for example, single gene disorders. Most of the traits that we care about are highly polygenic, meaning they involve hundreds or even thousands of genetic variants interacting. And so we don't even know enough about genetics right now to feasibly alter complex traits, let alone have a handle on CRISPR-Cas9 uh, to do so. And the reason for that, as I sh- I'm sure we'll get into, is that there are still so-called downstream mistakes or errors that happen when we use CRISPR-Cas9 to edit genes. Now, of course, future prognostication can be you know, notoriously difficult Whether with the famous uh, IBM quote about seeing a need for maybe three or four computers in the world. But <laughs> understanding something about genetics, not, not too much, but something, um, it, you know, some people might say, oh, by 2100, we'll be editing people to not be criminals or, or not be psychopaths at least. Uh, but that seems like a very complex trait or maybe, maybe psychopath is not as complex, but much more complex kind of behavioral editing that seems further off the horizon than most people, most people would think. I think that's absolutely right. So when CRISPR is first used legally, although it's been used illegally on humans, um, you know, whether that's 10, 20 years from now, who knows, it's going to almost certainly going to be for, for monogenic disorders. Again, uh, a particular heritable disease that in just involves just one gene or a small set of genes, what's much more likely to happen, and in fact is happening right now, is the ability to test not only for health conditions, but sets of genes that predict uh, longevity, intelligence, empathy, things like this. And the way it's going to happen, and I describe this in the book, is through embryo selection using polygenic scores. The idea is what people will do is shop around, as gay couples already do, for, for sperm and eggs. And then they can choose that embryo, which they've scanned among a set of embryos for the traits that they'd like to have. Now, again, this is still of fairly limited power, but we're very quickly gaining knowledge about what clusters of genes do. And on my view, what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years is, again, CRISPR-Cas9 will be used almost not at all, and maybe not at all, actually, legally. But embryo selection is going to get extremely powerful. And the main obstacle to using it over the next five to 10 years, although that's going to be solved too, is the number of embryos that we can produce. And that's limited not so much by the number of sperm that we can produce. Men produce billions per day, but by the number of eggs that we can get through induced ovulation. 
Is there, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of moral issues bound up in all of this. I mean, that's basically what your your entire book is about, is how to sort through a lot of these important questions. But is there at some fundamental level something worrying about meddling in genetics and genetics of, you know, not ourselves, but our offspring and future people? Like, I mean, the, the phrase playing God gets thrown around, but is there... Is there a fundamental worry here, or is it all just kind of edge cases that we should try to figure out how to address? Yeah, well, we'll get into the edge cases in a minute here. I mean, it's pretty clear to me, whether you teach this kind of material or just talk to, to people in an everyday conversation, there is often initial revulsion. Now, now some people almost seem to be predisposed to be excited about these prospects. And maybe they're also excited about, I don't know, nuclear energy and other things too. Maybe this, they just have risk-seeking personalities or, or very open personalities. But most people seem to have a kind of intrinsic fear or revulsion. I think it's mostly misplaced. Um, as I do throughout the book, I, I think like a Darwinian. And whenever I see this kind of universal reaction, I think, huh, I wonder what kind of heuristic is guiding people to have this visceral revulsion or sense of disgust toward intentional gen genetic modification. But I think what we need to do is really sort of set aside um, or at least sort out what is an unjustifiable heuristic or, or sort of mental disposition we have to resist these things from a rationally justifiable one. And what I have in mind is, you know, we can think of all kinds of cases, like we're programmed to be disgusted by incest. And it's maybe more controversial, but it seems to be true that even some natural revulsion toward homosexuality, especially by men, and maybe that's partly culturally induced, maybe it's, it's partly genetic, I don't know, but there are all kinds of heuristics that we have that we think are unjustifiable. And so we have to sort out like what's justifiable and what's not. Um, I do recognize again that there's this widely shared response to this. But one of the, one of the things we can do is, is argue by consistency. So we've been genetically modifying dogs, you know, cattle, um, the things that we eat, plants that we buy for, for many thousands of years. And it's been intentional, right? It's been intentional in the sense that we select certain seeds or select certain animals with traits that we value and we breed them more. Now, of course, uh, when you talk about humans and doing that, um, there is a, a rational response that, well, we don't want to have a government or some entity selecting which humans get to breed. But I'm rather making the more general point that we've been intentionally modifying at the genetic level the things that we eat and the things that we have around us, like dogs and cats, for many thousands of years. So I don't think there's any intrinsic reason to worry. We should worry rather more about the consequences and the uncertainty that we have. But it seems like there's a there's a real difference between the examples you've given of, you know, breeding dogs to get different traits or, you know, making more robust soybeans or whatever and selecting embryos or genetically modifying people. And that's that, you know, if I'm if I am have a high risk tolerance, I can take risk for myself. But what I'm doing if I am taking risks or making choices for someone else is making choices for someone else. And we, you know, I think rightly think there's something potentially wrong with that, especially if we're making the wrong choices for them. You know, so like you could, 
I could have designer ideas for what I want my kids to look like and use CRISPR to build them that way. I'm thinking of, I think when I was a kid, I remember hearing about genetic modification and my brother drew a picture of what he wanted his future offspring to look like if he could genetically modify them. And it was a, he gave them large bat wings and a bone whip instead of one arm, you know, and that would be, I could imagine that being morally problematic for the offspring who now has to look like this, right? So it seems like there's a fundamental difference here, or is it not as much a difference as I'm making it out to be? Yeah, that's great. So first of all, I'm, I'm enjoying the image of bat wings and it, you know, my, my general response is it depends on the proportion of other people in the population that have bat wings. That's my general ap- approach in the book. Um, it, on a more serious note, though, I think what we can do is, is follow economists in separating out things like all purpose goods from mere positional goods. There are other kinds of goods too, but what I have in mind here is that there are certain traits that are good for almost anyone to have a well-functioning immune system, for example, that's just generally good at producing antibodies that fight off infectious diseases like viruses and bacteria. Similarly, having something close to the averageness in, in height um, or average looks, that sort of thing. Uh, but more generally, we can think of traits like intelligence. So, it looks like having above average intelligence is both good for the individual and socially beneficial. And it's good for the individual in the sense that intelligence, working memory, things like this, they help you with almost anything you want to do, whether it be maintaining friendships, uh, gaining business partners, doing well in school, learning to an ever change, learning from an ever changing environment and adapting to it. And so I would say that there are all-purpose goods that most people would have an interest in enhancing. And then there are mere positional goods or these kinds of bizarre luxury goods like bat wings that some people might try to do. And I would agree with you that if someone wanted to do that to their children and that trait wasn't prevalent and didn't seem to have any benefit other than being a kind of odd luxury good for the parent, uh, it it's conceivable. Well, first of all, it's just true that it seems like it's immoral, but it's conceivable we'd even ban it. Do we have to define pretty carefully the moral relationship between parents and children and even possible children to kind of answer these questions? Because I see there's a similar thing of saying, you know, tiger mom type of things where parents are making their kids go through piano lessons and all these sort of personal betterment things that, that it is in vogue in different circles, even if the kid doesn't want it on the theory that they will like it in the future. And someone could argue that that's an illegitimate use of the parental power um, and maybe similarly apply that to some sort of genetic modification you could do before the child is born. I think that's right. I mean, um, we do need to think through the ethics of parenting and the parent-child relationship. After all, this this is a being that if he or she isn't already autonomous, is becoming autonomous. And part of the the job of good parenting is to cultivate in the child certain kinds of virtues, including openness and curiosity, not just compliance with what the parents want. So I think that's true, and that's got to be part of the public discussion. There's the sort of public policy part, and then there's just the ethics part, which is difficult to enforce through policy, but is nevertheless worth considering. So I agree. And and by the way, I should mention, there's a kind of literature on this. And the fear that was mentioned earlier is this idea that by genetically altering your children, you're in some sense closing off the future, right? And children have a right to an open future. Now, as many people have, have mentioned in the bioethics literature, 
Well, although that's true that you should confer on the child an open future, it's actually the case that certain kinds of modifications or selecting for certain traits is likely to give them a more open future, right? So if they're healthier, if they're smarter, and here we're talking about general intelligence, that's actually opening up possibilities in ways that other traits aren't. It also seems like it's difficult to draw a line if we're – so we were talking about doing actual gene editing, but if someone in the dating market, in the marriage market, if their preeminent concern is the genetic status of their child, it's not even love. If they are – maybe they want a mixed race kid or maybe they, you know, intelligence is the only thing they're looking for on the hope that they create an intelligent kid, that doesn't seem – like some sort of harm or wrong done to the future generation, possibly even if it's something, you know, more specifically, like I said, like a mixed race kid. So it seems very difficult to draw a line about what sort of behavior you can mod- use to modify the genetics and what sort of stuff you can't to use. Yeah, well, let me let me ask you, do you mean that we can't control the traits fully? Um, is your Is your question that parents that try to control traits actually won't end up doing it? Uh, no, I'm actually, aside from the eff- efficacy, um, so I think that the philosophical question. So, if I'm comparing it to actually gene editing, uh, so you, so you have a, right. So the the question of whether or not it's okay to do the gene editing um, s- sort of presupposes if successful, if you, if, you know, there's an error rate that it doesn't work or some sort of problem emerges from the gene editing. Similar, if you're doing a much more, you know. Uh, blunt way of trying to find a mate with specific traits. Um, and it, it, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe you don't achieve your goal of those specific traits. But the question here is, is the attempt, is the choice to try and do this, is there more, is there a philosophically salient difference between those two behaviors? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in, in a way, it is different, right? Because when you're trying to find a mate, I mean, as David Friedman has argued, this is intrinsically a barter market because you need a double coincidence of wants, at least in a free society, right? The mate has to want you back. And people like to couple up for all kinds of reasons. And, and I think most of them are legitimate. In the act of creating a child, as you're suggesting, it's quite different, and there's no consent on the part of the child, and that is a salient difference. Um, there's also the question of efficacy. Like like you said, whether it be gene editing or, or as I suggested, I think it's going to be embryo selection for the next, I don't know, four or five decades. That's going to be the really powerful one, and it's going to get increasingly powerful. Again, what that's going to do is it's going to allow us to assign polygenic scores to different embryos, which is going to tell us the likelihood that this uh, embryo will develop into a person with this or that trait, but where there's some degree of uncertainty. And there, there are really two issues that arise there. One is that, well, there can be a kind of virtue associated with choosing wisely, choosing on behalf of the child rather than just whatever your fetish happens to be, like really tall children or, you know, children with a particular skin color, which the child may or may not want. Um, so that's one aspect of this. Another is um, choosing in a way that they would consent to later on or that they'd have reason to consent to. And I think that that's that's really important to do. So it's it's kind of in the same way that you require consent on behalf of a mate, you would want a kind of counterfactual consent on behalf of the child that the embryo come becomes that you select. Let's turn to some of the specific kinds of enhancement that you grapple with in the book. Um, the chapter I found particularly interesting was the one on moral enhancement uh, because – 
morality, when we think about it, we've just been talking about morality for the last 15 minutes, morality is about values, beliefs, behaviors, and so on. So how would we even begin to, quote unquote, enhance morality genetically? Yeah, it's a great question. And philosophers up till now have not paid much attention to the scientific details. I try to do that in the book. And what philosophers have done is they've said, look, um, one of the things we'd want to do is potentially enhance affective empathy. So psychologists divide empathy into two kinds. There's cognitive empathy, which allows us to have a kind of theory of mind to understand what other people are thinking, maybe via their facial expressions and language and so on. And then there's affective empathy, which gives us a predisposition to respond to the needs and feelings of other people appropriately. So if you see someone in pain, then a natural response, if you have normal levels of affective empathy, is to help them out. Um, similarly, if you see someone who, uh, could use, could use a hand in some other way, affective empathy sort of allows you to understand them and then to respond to them in, in a, what we would consider a morally justifiable way. Um, another thing that people have talked about increasing, philosophers have talked about, is the sense of justice. And that's a little bit more vague, as you probably know. There are various conceptions of justice, ranging from sort of Aristotelian proportionality, like justice is just giving people their due, versus a kind of radical leftist conception of justice, where equal outcomes is what we're after. So what I try to do is sort of say, okay, if we're really serious about enhancing a sense of justice or affective empathy, what we're going to need to do is figure out what the genes are and the hormones are that actually lead us in particular directions here. And it turns out it's really complicated. I won't get into the details, but one really simple way of, of doing this, especially enhancing affective empathy, is by boosting oxytocin or by altering the receptors of oxytocin to make it more efficacious, to make them more efficacious. And one of the things that does is it helps us empathize more with the people around us. But there are problems which I can get into if you want to follow up on that. Well, it's interesting because um, it makes me think about certain drugs that are used to increase that sense of togetherness and and effective empathy. Uh, one is being MDMA. Uh, for yep. many people, it, it performs that oxytocin increase. That's right. Um, that's right. And then we could use, you know, maybe using those for conflict re resolution. Now, that's not genetically enhancing or changing uh, uh, entities, you know, genetic makeup. Uh, but it, it strikes me as I'm thinking because we have this, you know, how much effective empathy someone has. There's a very big political uh, aspect to this, wherein if I think about, say, the Soviet Union, which spent a very long time defining and creating a curriculum around a the Homo Sovieticus, like a different type of person, a different type of being right. that had unlimited altruism, basically, in the story, right? Like limited altruism, having only more care for your parents and your children and your friends than you do for your fellow Soviet citizens was a was a capitalist trait and that you could change that in people and create a society with unlimited altruism. I could see a lot if – you, if you can actually do this, I could see a lot of governments um, – and political philosophers trying to say this is how we create a, a just society is change the people who go into the society. I agree, and that's a real worry. And in fact, some philosophers have already taken the position that these should be mandatory enhancements. And I've tried to say, hey, hang on here. Let's put on the brakes here because we don't even understand the full – 
biochemical or genetic interactions that shape these moral dispositions. Now, these philosophers aren't saying we should do it right now, obviously, but but they're kind of playing through the logic and sort of saying, well, if some people are allowed to do this or, or morally required to do it, then maybe we should force everyone else into it because otherwise what we're not going to get is a society of cooperators. So that is a real worry. Now, let me back up really quickly and throw in some complications. It turns out one of the interesting things about oxytocin in particular is that the best experimental evidence suggests it allows us to or enables us to identify more closely with those around us and to behave more generously toward those around us, but it predisposes us to think less in statistical terms, in other words, or less like consequentialists. So it leads us to care more about the tribe around us, and that could be race, it could be uh, our local neighborhood, but it makes us think less about uh, just general people. And so there's a real trade-off there. It's not clear at all that enhancing the uptake of oxytocin even is a moral enhancement. It's a moral enhancement, I suppose you would say, in the sense that it facilitates cooperation among a specific set of people, but not necessarily generalized cooperation anyway. Is there too a worry about too much of a good thing? So bracket the issue of you know, possibly making in-group, out-group preferences worse. You know, you mentioned Aristotle, and Aristotle says that said virtue is a mean between extremes. And if we have lots of oxytocin or lots of a sense of justice, can we end up with too much of it? Can we overdo it in the enhancement grounds? Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the themes of the book is, you know, I think sort of like an economist, micro motives and macro behavior. And what I argue and what I think is true is that a moral enhancement has to be relative to the average moral dispositions in a population. So if you're too much of an outlier, what we can get is too much altruism or too little. So just as psychopathy is having almost no affective empathy and just not caring, morally speaking, about other people, there can be too much. Um, and that we might call pathological altruism, which is a term coined by, coined by Barbara Oakley. And let me just give a quick example here. So I won't get into too many complex details, but you can think of prisoner's dilemma games or public goods games, um, which I won't describe here, but basically situations in which what's good for each is not necessarily good for all. And, and an example is this. Um, generally speaking, in human life, it pays to cooperate with cooperators, but also to punish uh, defectors, people who don't cooperate. If you're an unconditional cooperator, which is equivalent to the Soviet man, so to speak, right? Just unequivocally altruistic, you actually not only will be worse off than you would be as a conditional cooperator, because you're going to get taken advantage of all the time. You make the world less safe for conditional cooperators because you make it more uh, you, you make the payoff to psychopathy, so to speak, bigger. So people who have more parasitic personality styles are going to thrive in a world in which you have a set of people who are sort of unconditionally altruistic. And so the real trick here is to turn people into, as we already mostly are, uh, reciprocal altruists or conditional cooperators, so to speak. Well, then, I mean, in the situation where let's say everyone's everyone is designing their children and you're looking at the nature of the cooperation, like the effect, this, the altruism. And it, in that situation, parents who really just care about their kids getting the most might choose psychopathy as a trait that would prefer them in a situation where everyone is cooperating. 
Yeah, so I agree with the spirit of that. I don't think anyone chooses would choose a psychopath in modern environments, at least in sort of you know rich industrialized societies, because psychopaths do tend to spend a lot of time in prison, and they don't seem to be especially. Uh, happy, at least in the Aristotelian sense of like having goals and pursuing them, long-term goals, plans. Uh, something like 20 to 25% of federal prisoners are psychopaths and they're almost always repeat offenders. However, the spirit of your point is right, which is to say it may pay to be a little bit more selfish than average for that person. And yet from a population standpoint, we wouldn't want that. We want cooperators. I think that's just a fact. That's just clearly true. Um, now it turns out when you get evidence from what women choose when they're going to sperm banks, they choose not only intelligence and health and, and cues of that, you know, they want a person of a certain size and athleticism. They actually choose kindness as one of their most important features. And so there is at least good evidence that people choose kindness and they want kinder than average people. However, there's also evidence that they want retaliators. They don't want people who are just going to sit there and take abuse. And let me just add one really quick thing to this, because I think it's pretty important. A couple of really famous economists named Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis, they started their careers in the 1950s as radical Marxists. They've come around to sort of more market-based views, and they coined a term in 2013, and that term is strong reciprocity. So they actually distinguish weak from strong reciprocity. And what they actually argued, and they give lots of evidence, is that Although there are lots of species that are, they reciprocate with cooperators and then they punish defectors, we're one of the only species, probably the only ones that are strong reciprocators. And what that means is that there's at least a subset of people who actually get joy out of cooperating. And so when they come to a kind of game where there are some real benefits from ripping people off, but there are also um, joint benefits from cooperation, they tend to start off as cooperators and really ramp up cooperation when they encounter other cooperators. And that's a really interesting disposition. And so what I think parents would have reason to select is for strong reciprocity, not merely weak reciprocity, provided that it goes along with this, this strategy that you also are inclined to severely punish defectors, that is people who exploit cooperators. This might be a good time to take a step back and ask about the decision-making process for all of this because what we've just been talking about, these these moral considerations and the interactions of different kinds of enhancements and not just the interactions like within the person but within that – from that person to society as a whole, um, these are all really complicated issues and they're issues that if we live in a world where – Genetic enhancement of this kind, whether through embryo selection or through gene modification directly, is a live issue for a lot of people. These are decisions that parents are going to have to make. And, and they're often decisions where, like, whether you get it right or wrong isn't going to be, you're not going to know for two decades or more as you see, you know, you, you, I'm going to build my child or select my child to have the following traits, but it takes, you know, until adulthood to see how they interact with other people and so on. Um, and, you know, our lives are determined by many, many factors beyond these particular ones. So who knows if I got it right? So it's just an incredibly complicated problem. How do we how do those kinds of decisions then get made, especially among parents with different levels of education, def different levels of time to commit to these kinds of questions, especially if we are worried about you know, the government 
making these decisions for us in a monolithic way. Like that doesn't seem like an appealing direction from a libertarian perspective, but you can imagine these are awfully difficult decisions for individual parents to make. I totally agree. And where we are now as a society, even the Western world, where there are a series of taboos on even talking about genetically encoded individual differences, for example, in intelligence, the fact that this is even a taboo subject at all in 2020 is, I think, um, well, it doesn't bode well for our, for our future ability to talk about these things. I do think that as this technology evolves, and I think it's happening very quickly with companies like Genomic Predictions, what's going to happen is a few people will, will test these things out. Um, we already do select, of course, embryos using IVF and that sort of thing for diseases. But as they're tested out on psychological traits, for example, and people see the successes and failures, they're going to be more likely to take the genetic knowledge seriously. Um, as economists say, actions reveal preferences. And right now, there's really not a cost to sort of lying to society or to yourself about the extent to which, you know, genes predispose us to do things, because right now this technology isn't being used. But once it's a real live possibility, I think people's incentives to understand it will dramatically increase. And the incentives are going to be equivalent to the incentives to educate your children. I mean, right now we have mandates in Western countries that you have to educate your children. But my view is very few parents would choose to have their children be illiterate because the cost of doing that is so high. And I think the same is going to be true for genetic knowledge. Not that everyone's going to use CRISPR or even embryo selection, but I think people will, for example, genetically test themselves, their mates and things like this, and it'll evolve from there. They're going to trust genetics more as they go. And I think one role that the government could play is making genetic knowledge freely available. Now, I don't mean they even have to subsidize it. That's one possibility. I just mean um, that there could be reasons for governments, for example, to either buy up patents or to just at least allow people to have access to the kinds of information that, that comes out over the coming decades. And one thing I'll just add, you know, briefly is that a lot of insurance companies are already offering genetic counseling as a, a as one of the benefits of being part of an insurance pool. And I think that's going to happen more and more. There's just going to be a demand for it, um, both for the parents themselves and for the kinds of children that they'll create. There is, of course, a prevailing sense, I think, of a lot of people who would be listening to this and maybe many people who wouldn't be listening to this, but a fear of the inegalitarian results that could come from this technology. If it is a capitalist system where there's, you know, high-end gene editing and low-end gene editing, bargain basement stuff for, for poor people, people who are relatively less well-off, then you could really exacerbate existing differences between the classes by allowing rich people to very much prefer certain traits in their kids that continue to you know, express those inequalities while the poor people can't afford it. Is this something that we should be concerned about? I think so. And it's just because people care about it. So I think libertarian personality types simply aren't universally shared. I think a lot of people don't think like libertarians, and some probably never will. And another way of putting that is some people just seem to care about equality more than others. I think we all care about certain kinds of equality, like equalities of opportunity, equality under the law, and so on. But equality of outcome, people seem to have radically different views about that. 
And, um, it, you know, you might say, well, people who care about equality of outcome are misguided. Maybe, but those attitudes seem pretty sticky to me. And to the extent people care about it, it may be that there's going to be political pressure to, for example, for, for governments to use policy to subsidize some of these technologies for everyone to use, that may just be part of the cost of living in a democratic society. Or by contrast, if you have a more constitutional society that doesn't sort of put everything off to democracies and democratic votes, it may be that a cost of liberty is massive inequalities. And that's just a cost worth paying for some people. Now, my view is over the long run, over the coming centuries, we should be breaking up into far more states. I just think the experiment in unlimited size states like the United States, 300 million, 500 million, a billion people, India with over a billion people, I don't think it's working very well. I think we should have a lot more decentralization and a lot more experiments in the way that people organize political societies. And one of the reasons I say that, it ties to your point, is that there are fewer negative or positive externalities to reproductive decisions when we live in smaller communities or smaller political societies. We don't have to say, well, this person living 3,000 miles away, they don't want to genetically enhance their kid or they can't afford it. Therefore, they pay the relative cost of inequality. The answer to me is let's break apart. Let's have more political societies and then we don't have to constantly centralize the interests that everyone takes in what other people do. So a lot of new technologies come along and are very expensive at first and are, you know, because of that only accessible to the very wealthy. But then the very wealthy through buying them, you know, they're buying the early expensive, relatively poor, essentially prototypes, but the technology improves, the cost comes down. And so the very wealthy are basically subsidizing the development of this technology for the rest of us. And eventually the technology spreads to everyone else. And we can see this play out with all sorts of different pieces of tech that have come along over the last several hundred years. But I guess I'm skeptical of that kind of argument in this particular instance, in the genetic um, enhancement instance, and this is picking up off of Trevor's question, which is let's let's say for the sake of argument that like we have we have a market economy and success in the market economy, you know how much wealth you gain is there's a whole lot of factors, um, a lot of it luck, but a lot of it not luck, but you know intelligence, social capital, those kinds of things play a big role. And so if the wealthy can enhance their children's intelligence, say, or whatever other traits are going to lead to market success, um, when the technology is new and very expensive, then their children are going to get, you know, even greater market success, even more wealth, enhance their own children. And you could imagine a a runaway, like basically feedback loop here um, that well before the time genetic enhancement becomes cheap enough that everyone can do it, you've essentially like gone to, you know, the ultimate kind of dystopia of social stratification. Um, the, the, you know, ev some people have everything, everyone else has nothing. Um, and that seems like, it doesn't seem like this, uh, you know, a satisfying solution to that is, well, we should have lots of states and some are the states for the people who are who have everything and some are the states for the people who have nothing because that level of inequality does seem to be morally problematic. Is there, is there a way to avoid that sort of thing? Yeah. As David Schmitz likes to say in political philosophy, there are no guarantees. So is there a way? Yes. Is it guaranteed? No. Um, 
Here's what I'd say about that. I, I think you're right. So it's true that people like us who support markets, we tend to say, hey, look, HIV medication, cell phones, sure, they were expensive at first, but basically the rich subsidized them for the poor. So the ultimate beneficiaries are actually the poor and, and the future poor who get to buy these technologies much cheaper and use them in ways that are more effective um, once they go off patent and so on. And the same we might say is true of genetic enhancement technology. And then you give this argument, no, but it happens so quickly, right? The advantages to my children of having, let's say, a 30-point IQ boost relative to yours are so massive, so big, and so quick that essentially they become almost like two species. Uh, they can interbreed, but one just has huge advantages over the other. And so if they broke off into these communities of the super intelligent and then the ordinary, then you might say, and this is a kind of objection that G.A. Cohen gave to, to Robert Nozick, well, then the, the, the rich and powerful and the genetically advantaged could use their talents to infiltrate the political system and more or less take advantage even more of the poor. So it's not just that the poor don't have the abilities of the rich, which they don't, but they then also get exploited politically. Um, that is a real problem. Uh, again, I think that's part of the price of liberty. So only a partial solution is to have different political communities in order to avoid having these very big differences in interests, um, the interests of the genetically enhanced and the unenhanced. I think we need to make political divorce a little easier. But here's another way of looking at it, and that is to think about the counterfactual. Um, what happens if we, in response to your very good objection, we say, look, we're just going to ban this technology. Well, my view is that in the future, there's going to be a really strong demand to use it anyway, either on the black market or to go to states that offer it. States like Singapore, I think, who are, you know, pretty um, optimistic about the future of these genetic enhancement technologies. My sense is states like Singapore will probably offer them in the same way that you can go to Mexico for cosmetic surgery, India for a spare kidney, or, you know, in states that don't allow abortion, people often fly to states that do. And so I don't think you can actually stop the use of this enhancement. What you can do is harness it in very subtle ways using public policy and social norms so that it's to the advantage of all. But again, there are no guarantees. If I... If I run my Black Mirror episode creator in my head forward and I picture this situation where you have very popular genetic modification, uh, it's it maybe there are specialty ones for richer people, but it's it's widely available. But you also see a significant number of people, possibly due to religious convictions, who refuse to participate in this out of moral objections to altering children and saying there's something unnatural about this. So there's a significant number of babies born that have no genetic alterations whatsoever, who are then seen as sort of an underclass or parasitic on the more productive genetically enhanced people in this discussion of whether or not they need to be supported or helped, um, even though their parents didn't choose for them the, the, the best sort of genetic path for their success. Um, I can see that Black Mirror episode running through and creating massive social problems of, of how we deal with those who simply refuse to use this, which I think could be a bigger issue than, than, than many people might think, that people will just refuse to do this on moral and religious grounds. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, my view is uh, laws and social norms are two rival solutions to the kinds of problems that we face. And in this case, 
the preferable solution would be that eventually norms will emerge because they are a kind of emergent order that pressure certain people, people who opt out in order to do this. And, and the same thing goes for, for vaccines and for other things. Now, it turns out there are some people who simply won't vaccinate their children under any circumstances. They'll pull, out, pull them out of school and so on. And, and sometimes there are laws that force them to. But of course, you know, a law that forces you to vaccinate your children, that's not a very high cost. It's not a lot of coercion. A law that forces you to genetically modify or select certain traits in children, as we can imagine, I mean, that's eugenics in the bad sense of the word eugenics. You know, we can think of 1930s and 40s Germany. And that's something I think we all want to avoid. Um, and so I think the only way to avoid it is, again, through social pressure or through the rights of freedom of association. And again, that's why I think of the Nozickian uh, vision of society where people have the right to peacefully separate into different political communities because the alternative I see is using lots of force in, in order in, in order to, to make parents or induce them to do certain things that really are imposing costs. I mean, that's one of the things here is that um, you know, as Garrett Jones has argued in his book Hive Mind from 2016, you know, it turns out like uh, higher IQ has really strong network effects. Higher IQ people tend to be more cooperative. And IQ and cooperation is a good predictor of all kinds of things like low levels of corruption, high GDP, low crime, all of these things. And so once this gets ramped up, the idea that you're going to opt out of this and your kids are just going to be sort of low IQ or low empathy, whatever, that actually is a cost that you're imposing on others in some sense of the word cost. And so, you know, my hope is that we can still have laws and norms that respect people's rights to choose. But I think there's going to have to be, there, there just will be a lot of social pressure to make the socially beneficial choice. That is to enhance in certain ways, not necessarily to enhance height or something like that, but to ensure at least a minimum of things like general intelligence or certain kinds of immuno enhancements and so on. I think there'll be a lot of pressure if parents don't do that. Well, I, and you mentioned eugenics, which I've written about before, especially in the Supreme Court case of Buck v. Bell. I could see traditional procreation being outlawed in some basic sense um, because of these concerns that that are being raised and, and eugenics in the really negative sense coming back basically in the way they did for Carrie Buck in 1927 saying that this feeble-minded woman, she wasn't, but that's what they called her, uh, is undeserving to have a child who will simply be a sort of a ward of the state or, or some sort of parasite on society. And so we're going to sterilize her now, or if not pr prohibit the, the traditional procreation. I could see that becoming a very strong possibility, which seems pretty bad. I agree with that. I don't think there's any way to avoid it, whether we like it or not. Um, any action that imposes strong social benefits or costs is the kind of thing, at least in a democracy, that is going to end up being up for grabs. I mean, this is why people fight so much even about education. And education probably, I mean, according to most evidence we have, doesn't have nearly as big effect on people's personalities as just genetics. So is this going to be 
on the table, I think it will. And the question is, how do we avoid it? I, of course, want to avoid it too. I will say, I mean, some of the more interesting things, there are some subtleties here. So, for example, many states around the country in the United States here, like North Carolina, actually do have what you might call eugenic sterilizations. Buck v. Bell was never overturned. It's just very rarely carried out now. So I have a friend who works at UNC Hospital as a psychiatrist, and he says every year a few people are involuntarily sterilized. Now, what are the grounds for that? It's usually they have an extreme psychological disorder. Um, they're extremely mentally disabled and they're hospitalized and they end up getting raped in the hospital or in some cases a severely mentally defective or uh, challenged person just chooses to have sex, you know, in some, and, and they have a baby. And it turns out you can actually, and it is done occasionally, forcibly sterilize those people. Is that wrong? Well, this is a dicey thing to talk about. I don't think it's wrong in those extreme cases, but empowering the state to do that in general, I think, is wrong. And that's exactly what happened with Buck v. Bell. So my sense is to agree with you on that, morally speaking. I do predict, nevertheless, that people will put that on the table again in the distant future. Um, and I don't know that there's a way around that. That's why I think freedom of exit and freedom of association is going to become increasingly important. We've spent most of the last 45 minutes talking about parents making choices for their children and what they want those children to be like and what traits they're going to pick. But a lot of the traits that you're talking about, a lot of the enhancements would seem to lead to increasing education, increasing wealth. Right. Like all of these things would would drive those up. And one of the most consistent trends that we have witnessed globally in the last, you know, several many years is the wealthier people are, the more educated they are, um, the freer they are, the fewer children they tend to have. And so is it possible that these genetic enhancements would not lead to just a litany of questions about what kinds of kids each of us wants to have, but a declining interest in even having them, especially if other enhancements give us, you know, radically longer life for, you know, at, at we're healthier for longer periods, we live decades longer. Like I can imagine that lots of people, maybe even too many people would simply not decide not to have children at all. I totally agree. And I love the question. I think this is an under-discussed issue. Um, I actually think the greatest tragedy of, of our time is that so many people are opting out of parenthood. Now, if we all lived a thousand years or forever, and I don't, I don't think the technology for that is anywhere near on the horizon, but if we did, maybe that wouldn't be a tragedy because there's, you know, billions of people on earth and we're living happy, productive lives. That's fine. But yeah, I mean, intelligence is negatively correlated with fertility. So is wealth. So is education. And when you have all three together, um, yeah, you've got way below replacement levels in places like Japan, Korea, even China now. And certainly all of Western Europe, the United States, Australia, Canada, all of them are well below replacement levels of fertility. And people aren't living, you know, a thousand years, right? They're just living 80 years. So I think this is already a big problem and it could become an even bigger problem. Now, I do consider in the last chapter some sort of far off things. And Nick Bostrom over at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and others have argued that it may be in the distant future, people will have an interest in subsidizing 
genetically enhanced children that aren't even their own, right? In subsidizing other people reproducing just because, I mean, we want kids, we want people who are smart and creative and interesting and empathetic and whatever traits that you like. Um, it's just nice to have them not only as trading partners, that's a good predictor of, of um, wealth and social success, but just having them in the population. And, you know, this is far off, I think, but I do, I do imagine a world in which some people would voluntarily either pay on their own or even pay through taxation to subsidize some people in having children. Um, it would be a kind of labor. I know that sounds strange from from our current year, but I do see that as a, a, actually a big problem, the the plummeting fertility and, and why would people have children if they don't have these kinds of reasons to that they do now. Given the inevitability of these technologies, and even as you pointed out, if if they're highly regulated or even prohibited, the black market will be thriving. What should we be doing now to prepare culturally, socially, technologically, legally, pre prepare for this future that is coming? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I really think paying attention to how choice works, so studying both economics and genetics. So what I mean by economics is really the essence of it, in my view, is well, it's really microeconomics. It's how individual choices end up shaping overall patterns in ways that people don't naturally think about. So going back to Smith, Hayek, people like this, really what they're doing is studying emergent orders or, or, or also David Hume, right? How do we get these appearances of design and order and these overall social patterns from micro choices and micro motives? That's the essence of economics. And I think it's really important for people to just understand how that works and how just you making a rational choice or thinking others will too is going to necessarily produce a good outcome. It doesn't, right? And so we need to pay attention to the dynamics of choice. People need to understand that more. And the other, the, the other field is, of course, genetics, just understanding biology, evolutionary biology, and the basics of genetics. You know, people are in the West woefully ignorant of this. And, and as I argue in the book and in other places, I think a lot of this is just politically motivated resistance. And there's a real cost to that. People end up, for example, blaming parents as, as bad parents because their children ended up in certain ways. And sometimes that's true, but it's often not. We, we simply have a lot more genetic knowledge out there. There's more genetic information than most people know. They just don't understand the extent to which uh, the traits that we have are, are so heavily influenced by genes. So I think as people, again, learn to think on the one hand more like economists and on the other understand genetics more, we'll be in better shape. My own view, strangely enough, even though I'm a moral philosopher technically, I was one of Jerry Gauss's students, I think more like an economist. And that's partly because I think people naturally already think in moral terms. We don't have to teach them to be moral agents. It is good for parents to teach them to be nice to others and so on. But I actually think moral reasoning just comes out naturally. But economic reasoning, genetics, evolutionary biology, I think people don't naturally think like that. And it really has to be taught. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.